0: Back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. We're now officially deep into autumn. The leaves are changing colors. It's so beautiful. This is one of the good things about living in a place that has actual seasons for about three weeks of the year. It's fantastic. The weather is perfect. The aesthetic is lovely. And then it's super cold for the next five months or so. And then it's incredibly hotter and humid for three months. And then you get those three perfect weeks of autumn. But enough about general weather patterns in the Midwestern United States. This is not a weather podcast. This is a history podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about Joanna the 1st of Naples. I actually had no idea about who Joanna the 1st of Naples was until winter 2020 in a book history class I was taking as part of my master's degree. One of the guest lecturers in that class during the break that we usually had in class, mentioned offhandedly Joanna of Naples and how she was married to a Hungarian noble. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I stored that little factoid in my head. And then when I came to this series about bad bad marriages, I was like, I wonder how that weird little marriage that I had once heard about turned out did some digging, and it turned out that Joanna of Naples had an absolutely shit show of a marriage, and not just one marriage. She had multiple marriages that didn't end so well, aka she is perfect for the series. Before we fully dive into her episode, however, I do want to give a slight content warning for abuse. Two of her husbands were by... The standards of 2020, pretty abusive to her, both physically and emotionally. I personally would consider Joanna a victim of domestic violence, although of course, when she was alive, there was no conception of that. So if that's something that is triggering for you, you might want to skip this episode, or if you still are really curious about Joanna the First, and you should be, because in my opinion, she is really. Interesting. You might want to stop listening when I mention Louis of Toronto and her relationship with him after they get back to Naples, as well as her relationship with her third husband. Without of with that out of the way, let's dive in to the life of Joanna the First of Naples. Her study guide has possibly being buried alive, anti-popes, and not one, not two, but three pretty miserable marriages. Let's begin. Joanna I of Naples was born sometime between 1326 and 1328 because once again, she's a woman in the Middle Ages. Why would we even bother writing down her actual birthday? Her contemporaries, especially in Italy, almost certainly would have referred to her as Giovanna, but for the sake of this podcast, I'm just gonna be calling her Joanna because that's how she's known to history, specifically American slash English history. And yes, tragically I am an American, so I used so I use the Anglicized version of names. Joanna's parents were Charles, the Duke of Calabria, and Maria of Valois, who was a direct descendant of Eleanor of Aquitaine. By the time Joanna was born, her parents had had three other children, but all three of those children had already died. Soon after Joanna's birth, her father died, and her mother also ended up dying by 1331 after giving birth to Joanna's little sister, whose name was Maria. Even though Joanna and Maria were young orphans, they were still decently okay in the world, and that was because Joanna's grandfather, her father's father, was Robert the Wise, the King of Naples. The death of Joanna's father put Robert in a bit of a tricky position, Charles was Robert's oldest son, so according to Neapolitan inheritance laws, the throne should go to Charles's children, aka the baby Joanna. But some of Robert's younger children had by now given birth to boys who weren't literally infants, who could have been better candidates for the throne. Ultimately, Robert decided to keep the original inheritance plan in place because Naples traditionally was okay with potentially having women inherit the throne, so Joanna was going to be his heir. This idea was more than a bit controversial at the time because not only was Joanna a girl, she was, after all, a baby girl but Robert insisted on the plan, and no one was going to say no to him, because as it turned out, Robert was an excellent king, and, well, you don't say no to a good king. In addition to making his granddaughter Joanna his heir, he also made her the Duchess of Calabria, the Countess of Provence, and the Princess of Salerno, which is quite a lot of titles for a baby. As a result of the whole dead parents slash grandfather being the king of Naples thing, Joanna and her little sister grew up at the court of Naples. By the 1320s, Naples was super prosperous. It was the center of the international grain market, so it was rich and Joanna had a pretty good childhood. Not only was she living in one of the more lavish courts in medieval Europe, she also was living in a court where culture and education were a top priority. During Joanna's youth, major figures including Petrarch and Boccaccio would swing through her grandfather's court and later on would end up writing about her. While I wasn't able to find out a lot of details about Joanna's early life, I would feel somewhat safe saying that she probably knew how to read and write, given the environment she grew up in. In 1333, when Joanna was about six years old or so, Robert engaged her to one of her cousins, Andrew of Hungary. Robert was hoping that this marriage would keep Andrew's family from usurping the throne of Naples. Basically, Andrew's father's father technically should have inherited the throne of Naples way back when instead of Robert, but for various complicated political reasons, that did not happen. But the Hungarian side of the st- family was still pretty ticked off about it. Aunt Robert was hoping that by marrying Andrew to Joanna, he could ease some of those family tensions. In 1333, the same year that the two got engaged, Joanna and Andrew got married. The two were around six years old, which makes the whole child marriage thing a little bit less creepy because at least we don't have a massively gross age gap. About 10 years later, in 1343, Robert died, and suddenly Joanna, at around the age of 15, was about to inherit the throne of Naples. However, because she was still only 15, she couldn't rule alone, and there was the whole scandal that she was a woman. To make matters more complicated, Robert hadn't been super specific about his succession plans, especially in terms of what would happen with Andrew's family and the throne, because remember, technically they were supposed to inherit the throne instead of Robert, and even though Andrew and Joanna were now married, they still would like to have full control of the throne of Naples. Thank you very much. Robert did say in his plans that the throne would go to Joanna and her children, and then Joanna's little sister and her children, and then who knew? So as a result, Andrew's family wasn't exactly pleased to be partially cut out of the succession, even though their descendants technically could inherit the throne someday if Andrew and Joanna had some kids. In addition to this little wrinkle, Robert had left behind about eight other male cousins who felt like maybe they should have the throne of Naples over Joanna, and these cousins are going to be waiting and waiting in the background. Because Joanna was not of age, there was a regency council put in place to rule Naples until she was 25 years old. Originally, this regency council was mostly run by Robert's second wife, Sancha. As it turned out, Sancha and Joanna were super close and worked very well together. This makes sense. Sancha had basically been the one to raise young Joanna. Most of the male advisors on the Regency Council were not a fan of Sancha running the show, so they quickly pushed her out of power and sent her to live at the convent of Santa Maria della Croce in Naples, and said convent did not have the best reputation, aka there were rumors that people who ended up at that convent got buried alive, and Sancha died about 18 months after being sent there. It's unclear whether or not she was buried alive. Once Sancha was out of the picture, Joanna's regency council started to fragment. At the same time, Naples was starting to see a bit of a financial downturn thanks to a series of bad harvests, so now was not the time for the ruling group of the city to break apart. The regency council basically split between those who supported Andrew's Hungarian family, and those who supported another one of Joanna's cousins, Charles of Durazzo, who felt like he should have been king instead of Joanna and was trying to improve his chances of getting the throne by attempting to engage himself to Joanna's little sister Maria, but that engagement plan ended up going nowhere. Despite all the Regency Council drama and backstabbing, Joanna still managed to have a nice little coronation featuring the Pope himself in 1344. Her husband Andrew, meanwhile, got nothing but the ceremonial title of king. In addition to being crowned Queen of Naples by the Pope, Joanna also was given the title of Queen of Sicily and Jerusalem, even though her power over either place was ceremonial at best. Once the coronation and the bestowing of all the titles had died down, Andrew and his Hungarian family were absolutely furious that all he had gotten out of the ceremony was a lousy title, even though that had been part of the marriage deal all along. And the anger from the Hungarians was soon going to heat up. In September 1345, Joanna's husband, Andrew, was murdered. At the time, Joanna was pretty pregnant and Andrew had a not-so-great f- habit of threatening her and talking about how he was going to take the throne from her as soon as the baby was born. One night in September, after a particularly nasty round of threats from her dearly beloved husband, a group of armed men dragged Andrew out of bed, and basically strangled him slash hanged him off of a balcony. Joanna was immediately blamed for his death, and rumors started that she had ordered Andrew murdered because she was having an affair with one of her cousins on the side. However, there was no actual proof for these rumors, and soon after Andrew's murder, a single assassin was found, tortured, and promptly executed. Soon after Andrew's death, Joanna ended up giving birth to Andrew's child, who she named Charles Martel, on December twenty fifth, 1345. And as we all know, a baby baby born on Christmas is nice and symbolic. Less than a year, a little over a year after her husband's oh-so-tragic demise, Joanna got remarried. Once again, her husband was one of her cousins. Louis of Toronto, who happened to be that man who she was rumored to be having an affair with. Almost immediately after the wedding, Andrew's older brother, Louis of Hungary, decided to invade Naples. After all, the Hungarian side of the family did feel like they should have more of a say slash a place in the Neapolitan succession And one of their sons had just ended up being murdered, and Joanna hadn't exactly seemed all that choked up about it. As as Louis of Hungary was preparing his invading forces, one of Joanna's other cousins and past regents, Charles of Durazzo, also tried to usurp the throne. And then, as if things weren't getting bad enough. A plague hit the city of Naples. Joanna, who once again was extremely pregnant, decided that for her safety she needed to get out of Naples asap. In the ensuing panic, she had to leave her, tr- she had to leave her son Charles behind. She figured that because Charles was half Hungarian, thanks to his father Andrew. Louis of Hungary's invading forces would treat the boy fairly well, and she was correct. Charles was taken prisoner by Louis of Hungary, who was apparently nothing but nice to the young toddler. However, tragically, Charles would end up dying in Hungary the next year due to some disease that we could probably treat extremely easily nowadays with basic antibiotics. In addition to capturing Joanna's son— Louis of Hungary also captured Joanna's ex-regent, Charles of Durazzo, and had him executed, which was extremely helpful for Joanna because, hey, Charles of Durazzo was also trying to overthrow her. After the whole being overthrown by her own cousin thing, Joanna quickly made her way to Avignon in southern France. Technically, Avignon did belong to Joanna via her mother, who as we established way at the beginning of this episode, was French. Once she was settled in Avignon and had a chance to catch her breath, Joanna decided to set up a meeting with Pope Clement VI. After all, Joanna was being accused of murdering her first husband, and when you're accused of something that major, the best person to convince that you're innocent is the Pope. But wait, Amelia. I can hear you saying, why the hell is the Pope living in southern France and not, you know, in Rome in the papal palace? Well, for reasons that we do not have time to go into here, but that involve things like anti-popes, the Pope in the 1300s was living in southern France and not in Rome. During her meeting with Pope Clement VI, Joanna ended up impressing the hell out of everyone when she insisted on speaking for herself and did so quite eloquently. Pope Clement VI ended up making a public statement that said not only that said not only was Joanna not guilty of Andrew of Hungary's death, she in fact had nothing to do with it at all. He also said that the marriage between Joanna and Louis was in fact. Valid because there had been some questions with a capital Q about the status of the marriage since Joanna and Louis were so closely related. Finally, Pope Clement VI said that Joanna, not Louis of Hungary, had the rightful claim to rule over Naples. He basically argued that the Hungarians had no right to land in Italy, which really bolstered Joanna's claims to retake her city. In exchange for these teeny tiny little favors, Joanna sold her land in Avignon for the Pope, which was great for him. After all, it's hard to be Pope out of a city when you don't actually control said city. During her time in Avignon, Joanna would have another child, a daughter named Catherine, who would die in infancy. The same year that her daughter died, a serious plague hit Naples. Welcome to the Middle Ages. There's almost always a serious plague hitting some sort of city. Yes, such plague did lead to widespread death and suffering, but... On the upside, it meant that Louis of Hungary was forced out of the city in order to not die, which gave Joanna the chance she needed to retake it. And she did retake Naples, about a month after giving birth to little baby Catherine, to which I say, oh my god, you go girl. I can't imagine doing anything a month after giving birth to a child. Heck, Sometimes I can't imagine doing something a month after going for a particularly long run. However, in the process of getting her city back, her darling husband Louis decided that he was going to grab power from her, and it mostly worked. So now, even though Joanna had Naples back, she was queen in name only. The next year, Louis of Hungary did briefly return back to Naples and tried to grab the city back once again since the plague threat had cooled down. During the new siege, Louis did temporarily agree to share some minimal amount of power with Joanna, and this power-sharing agreement did work because the Hungarians failed to seize the city, and Joanna and Louis managed to expand Neapolitan territory a bit. You'd think from this experience, Louis would realize that his wife was a competent leader and that he should work with her. Sadly, that's not what happened. Instead, Louis grabbed back the power he had so magnanimously given Joanna and insisted on ruling on his own and now that he was king and really did have the power, Louis started to turn on his wife. He kept accusing her in public of being unfaithful to him, which is not done if your wife is the queen and you only got power because you married her. It seems like that he was starting to become very emotionally abusive towards Joanna at this point, and it's going to get a little bit worse because Joanna was pregnant yet again, and she gave birth to another daughter who they named Francois, and Francois, like Joanna's other children, died in infancy. To make it even sadder, Francois died literally the day that Louis was being crowned king consort at his own, assist- at his own insistence. After Francois's death, the relationship between Joanna and Louis never really recovered. Because Louis was being so openly cruel to her, Joanna started to gain public sympathy in Naples for basically the first time in her reign. Prior to this, she was known solely as that heartless teenage queen who had had her first husband killed because she wanted to sleep with her sexy cousin. In 1362, Louis died, and for the first time in her life, Joanna was able to rule on her own. After all, she wasn't married to anyone, and she was over the age of 25, so that pesky little regency council thing was out of the way. And as it turned out, Joanna seemed to do a pretty decent job of ruling. Naples began to recover from the financial downturn of the plague and famine, and Joanna started to expand the city's cultural and educational opportunities, especially for women in the sphere of education. Joanna would end up getting married two more times because she did not have an heir and that was starting to become a real problem. Who would inherit the throne once she was dead if she didn't have an heir? Joanna's third husband was James IV of Majorca. Joanna married him in September 1363. By the time she married James, Joanna was 36, and James seemed like an ideal husband for her because one, he had his own kingdom, albeit a small kingdom, which meant he was fairly unlikely to try to usurp her kingdom, and two, he was not related to her, which meant that they should have an easy time having children who wouldn't be disastrously malformed. However, As it turned out, James was not exactly mentally stable. He had spent over a decade as a child as a Spanish prisoner of war, most of which involved being locked in a small cage, and as a result, he tended to snap a lot. During their marriage, he had a not-so-great tendency to physically abuse Joanna to the extent that her ladies-in-waiting actively feared for the queen's life. Luckily for everyone, James did not spend that much time at court. In 1367, he joined up with Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, to fight against the Spanish in Aragon and very quickly got himself captured. He'd spend the next few years in and out of captivity and then dealing with various illnesses before dying in Spain in 1375. Joanna and James did not have any children together, and he really wouldn't have any impact in Neapolitan politics after 1367. The year after James died, Joanna got married for the fourth and final time to Otto, the Duke of Brunswick. It seems like Joanna married Otto because, well, he was available and she needed a husband. This time, Otto was much lower ranked than Joanna, which meant that she was going to be in charge of the relationship. After all, her courtiers would not insult the queen by deferring to a mere duke. Even though Otto was extremely low ranked when it came to court protocols, he had a reputation for being a fantastic warrior and seemed to do a good job of helping Joanna and the Neapolitan military out. All in all, it seemed like the marriage between Joanna and Otto worked out pretty well, and their relationship was good. As a result of the relative stability that by now was going on in Joanna's personal life, and that had really begun once James had gotten himself captured, she was able to focus on the actual ruling aspect once again. And once again, it turned out that Joanna did a pretty good job at, you know, ruling her kingdom. Like her grandfather, she was able to turn Naples into a real powerhouse within the Mediterranean. Trade was booming, the economy was good. She also continued the tradition of Naples being a center of cultural and intellectual life. She became particularly close with two female religious figures, Catherine of Siena and Rikita of Sweden. Joanna was also very close to the Catholic Church, which was still based in Avignon. She had been lending them a good amount of money, which meant that she had a decent amount of sway in church affairs. She ended up being key to the organization of a peace treaty between the papacy papacy and Florence, and Florence was the most powerful state in the Italian peninsula, which says quite a lot about Joanna's level of power on a more international stage. However, in 1378, things began to fall apart for Joanna. That year, the Pope at the time, Gregory XI, died. After his death, a split started in the Catholic Church over if they should continue on in Avignon or if they should move back to Rome, a.k.a. the center of the papacy. Joanna ended up backing the man who would become the next Pope, Urban VI and it looked like she and Urban would get along. After all, Urban had spent a good portion of his career working in Naples, and the two had met before. But very quickly, the relationship turned sour. As it turned out, Urban was not a fan of the papal past in Avignon and and was pissed at Joanna for supporting it. Soon after he became Pope, he publicly insulted both her husband and her and then to punish Joanna for her past support of the Avignon papacy, Urban said that she had no right to rule Naples and went as far as to suggest that she should spend the rest of her life locked up in a convent. Unsurprisingly, Joanna was not about these suggestions. She started hearing rumors that Urban maybe hadn't gained the papacy in the most legitimate of ways, and as soon as she heard this, Joanna was like, okay, fine, let's take this man down. She quickly joined forces with some cardinals who also didn't love the direction Urban was taking the church, and they worked to make Urban's election as pope null and void. Joanna ended up throwing her support behind a different candidate, Robert of Geneva, who the Cardinals named as the new pope, aka Clement VII. Just so we're all aware, Clement VII eventually would be named an antipope, which is all nice and fun. Pretty quickly, there were two popes, which was a bit of an issue and led to a nice little church schism the pro-French faction of the Catholic Church went for Clement, while the pro-Roman faction, which included Joanna's old friend, Catherine of Siena, went for Urban. While Joanna was team Clement, the rest of Naples did not support this move. After all, Naples was firmly in the Roman umbrella, and Urban did have ties to the Neapolitan community. Also, Urban had by now excommunicated Joanna, which made her control on the throne extremely shaky. Now that all sorts of fun political drama was picking up again, Joanna's favorite cousin, Louis of Hungary, popped back in the picture. He had befriended Charles of Durazzo, the nephew of the Charles of Durazzo, who had tried to overthrow Joanna. All the way back then. This new Charles of Durazzo was now married to Joanna's niece and thus was Joanna's most likely heir, even though Joanna still hadn't officially named an heir. Louis of Hungary convinced Charles of Durazzo to speed up the whole becoming the next person to occupy the throne of Naples thing, aka, he paid for Charles's invasion of. Naples. And in fairness to Louis, he might have been doing this to save himself because Charles of Durazzo had also been thinking about conquering Hungary. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This plan of Louis ended up working perfectly. By the end of 1381, Charles of Durazzo had captured the city of Naples and had Joanna in his custody. A few months later, on May 22nd, 1382, Joanna mysteriously turned up dead at the age of 56. We don't know exactly how Joanna died, but it's pretty clear that Charles had her murdered. The two most likely ways that she was murdered were either that she was strangled or smothered to death between two feather mattresses. Because Joanna was excommunicated at the time of her death, she was not allowed a proper church burial. Instead, she was thrown down a well at the church of Santa Chiara in Naples. Joanna's death caused a real mess. Charles of Durazzo, surprise surprise, claimed that he was the new king of Naples, but Joanna, at some point before her death, had adopted a French prince named Louis of Anjou, and had named him as her heir, and now Louis of Anjou was making a claim on the Neapolitan throne, which caused a whole other round of internal drama in Naples, which is beyond the scope of this particular episode. So, that is Joanna I of Naples and her many marriages, only one of which turned out remotely well. For those fans of the study guides who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's recap the life of Joanna of Naples. Joanna of Naples was born sometime between 1326 and 1328 in, well, Naples. Even though both her parents died by the time she was a toddler, she and her younger sister Maria were taken in by her paternal grandfather, Robert the King of Naples, because, well, Joanna just so happened to be second in line to the throne with her father's passing. Robert's decision to give his throne to his baby granddaughter was not exactly popular in the larger family. After all, Robert had many other children and cousins and nephews who felt like they deserved the throne more than some baby girl. In an attempt to weigh it off, a threat of usurpation Robert married Joanna off to one of her cousins, Andrew of Hungary, because yes, technically he had stolen the throne from the Hungarian side of the family, but look, we really don't want to talk about it. In 1343, when Joanna was about 15 years old, Robert died, and Joanna was suddenly Queen of Naples. Because she was so young, and Gasp, a girl, A Regency Council was put in place to rule until she was 25 years old. Things looked like they could be going really well. After all, Naples was an international trade center. It had a reputation for also being a cultural and intellectual center. However, about two years into Joanna's reign, her husband and cousin, Andrew of Hungary, showed up murdered. And pretty soon, rumors were swirling that Joanna had ordered Andrew murdered so that she could continue on an affair with one of her other cousins, Louis, even though the likelihood was Andrew was probably murdered because he had a not-so-nice habit of threatening his wife, who by now was extremely pregnant. Less than two years after Andrew's death, Joanna got remarried to the very cousin Louis, who she was accused of of having the affair with. This decision of Joanna's was not popular. Andrew's older brother, who also was named Louis, decided to invade Naples in response. As soon as Louis started invading Naples, an outbreak of the plague happened, and Joanna, who once again was pregnant, realized that her best course of action was to flee the city with her brand new husband. The two did that, and spent the next few years in Avignon in France, befriending the pope who lived there, Pope Clement VI, and biding their time to get back to Naples. By the 1350s, they were able to retake the city thanks to a plague and regain the throne. However, during the successful invasion, Louis decided that he, and not his wife, should be the one to rule Naples. Louis utterly sidelined Joanna and quickly became pretty abusive to his wife, For the next decade or so, until he died in 1362. For the first time, Joanna was able to rule on her own. She wasn't married, and since she was over 25 years old, she no longer had to deal with a regency council. As it turned out, she was a pretty great ruler. Naples continued to do economically well, and she re-established it as an intellectual and cultural center, maintained a fantastic relationship with the Catholic Church, helped organize some peace treaties, etc., etc. She got married two more times. Her third husband, James IV of Majorca, was a major abusive piece of shit, but luckily for everyone, he was more interested in fighting with Edward the Black Prince of Wales and getting captured by the Spanish army than doing any ruling, and he died while in captivity in 1375. Luckily for Joanna, her last husband, Otto, the Duke of Brunswick, seemed like a sweetie. He was much older than Joanna, was an excellent warrior, and thanks to the huge gap in their ranks, he was content to sit back and let his wife rule. And Joanna continued to rule and had another few good years of ruling until 1378 when then-Pope Gregory XI died. Gregory XI's death started a bit of a schism in the Roman Catholic Church. Initially, Joanna backed the man who would become the Pope, Urban VI. After all, Urban had spent a lot of time working in Neapolitan churches. Joanna vaguely knew him. It looked like the two would be a match made in heaven. But Urban hated the people passed in Avignon and was not pleased that Joanna had been a fan of it and started suggesting that Joanna had no right to rule Naples and should get herself into a convent. So Joanna switched sides and started backing the anti-pope Clement Seventh. This caused a whole lot of political drama in Naples. Sensing an opportunity to take advantage of this political drama, Joanna's old nemesis Louis of Hungary popped back in the picture. He befriended a possible heir of Joanna's, Charles of Durazzo, who was aching to get his hands on the Neapolitan throne, financed an invasion of Durazzo's into Naples, and sat back and watched as Durazzo captured the city. A few months after Naples was captured by Durazzo's forces, Joanna died while in custody. She was either strangled or smothered to death. So that is the life of Joanna I of Naples. In most of history, Joanna had a not so great reputation. She was sort of seen as this like slutty man-eater, very similar to Isabella II in fact. but when you actually like look at the sources, her contemporaries saw her either pretty positively or somewhat ambivalently, much like... Isabella II. it's only a few centuries later that we start to get this, like, negative perception, and that negative perception really continues and deepens with the Victorians, of course, because the Victorians didn't know how to have fun. Nowadays, most modern historians, it seems, are trying to, like, rehabilitate Joanna's image and are like, hey, look, she was actually competent, and that's something we should recognize in a ruler and embrace. Most of my research for this episode came from Sharon Jansen's article on Joanna, Ontario's article, in her truly excellent Queens of Infamy series. If you have not read the Queens of Infamy, what are you doing with your time? Sit down and read them ASAP. They truly are so funny. I cackle every time I read them. Also, two books were extremely helpful, Elizabeth Castine's from *She Wolf to Martyr* and *The Lady Queen* by Nancy Goldstone. I love Nancy Goldstone's work. I first started reading her, I think, when I was in high school when I read her book *Out of the Flames*, which is fantastic. And she just captures the time and like sense of the middle of the Middle Ages and just makes them come to life. It makes them come to life in such a compelling way. As always, a full list of sources and relevant images are available on the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, concerns, ideas, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to help the podcast out financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Patrons- Get access to a bunch of cool things, like the biweekly Tangent Cast, which talks about people, places, or things that don't quite fit into a normal episode. The upcoming Tangent Cast is going to be talking about another Joanna of Naples, Joanna II, who was not Joanna the First's daughter, but often gets confused with her or combined with her, which is weird because the two were not at all alike. Other prizes on the Patreon, include getting to suggest study guide subjects. Next week, I will be tackling another Joanna from history, Joanna the Mad of Castile. Until then, you can reach us on social media. There's the Twitter, Sad Girl Study Pod, and the Instagram, which I'll begin posting again, which I'll start posting on again, I promise. Just stuff is going on with that, that I have to deal with. Sad girl. study, And as always, the best way to help us grow, tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let us know how we're doing. Rate our review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!